Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, April 27th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, I just want to begin today by wishing my dad a happy 73rd birthday. Charlie Wanunu, happy birthday. Hope you're enjoying it. He's celebrating in a different way this year, Jill. Uh, my parents literally making the move, the retirement move right now from Chicago to Texas over the course of the next couple of days. They decided not to do Del Boca Vista? <laughs> no, they are not future Floridians. They're going Texas, uh, looking for <laughs> land and freedom. Like many other Americans, actually. Very cliche right now, moving <sighs> to Texas. All right, well, a big happy birthday to him. And let's get to some news here. Disney versus DeSantis, a new lawsuit aimed at Florida's Republican governor. China and Ukraine hold their first talks since Russia invaded Ukraine. The banking crisis continues. This time, though, there's concern about First Republic Bank. House Republicans make their big move to get President Biden to negotiate as the debt ceiling deadline approaches. And as the Biden campaign starts, one of their first tasks, boosting the popularity of Vice President Kamala Harris. And first it was standardized tests, and now it's homework. Why some schools are doing away with homework for kids. Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. If you know the Marine hymn from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we give you the history of Tripoli today on this day a little over 200 years ago. I don't know what you're talking about, Mosh. <laughs> Jill, if you're a Marine, you know the Marine hymn, and it goes back to their first <laughs> major effort back in the early 1800s, which happened to be on April 27th. Okay, now to our top story, the latest in Disney versus DeSantis. Things are now going to federal court. The Walt Disney Company is suing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over what it calls a relentless campaign to weaponize government power. The lawsuit was filed Wednesday in U.S. District Court. It was filed minutes after a new board voted to invalidate an agreement between Disney and the previous board killing two development contracts that Disney signed in February. The new board was handpicked by DeSantis to oversee Disney's special taxing district. The lawsuit describes the vote as, quote, the latest strike in a targeted campaign of government retaliation orchestrated at every step by Governor DeSantis as punishment for Disney's protected speech. If you remember Disney campaign to overturn Florida's parental rights in education law, Critics had called it the don't say gay bill. The year long fight has strained what had been a cozy relationship between Florida's government and the state's best known employer and detraction of tens of billions in tourism dollars. DeSantis earlier this month suggested that the state could build a prison or even a competing theme park on what had been for decades Disney controlled property. Yeah, this has really been escalating. The Disney CEO, Bob Iger, hinted at this case to shareholders earlier this month, telling them that, quote, the company has a right to freedom of speech, just like individuals do. The governor got very angry about the position that Disney took. Keep in mind, this is when Iger wasn't in charge. Uh, when Bob Chapek was in charge, Iger is now back. But he is just as upset in Florida's move to retaliate against the company and feels that Florida has been punishing the company simply for exercising its right to free speech, criticizing a bill that was going through the process. So this fight now shifts to the courts. Disney filed a 77-page lawsuit. I posted a link to it in Instagram if you're looking to read through it. It's seeking an injunction that would block this new 
DeSantis-appointed board from exercising the power that the Republican-led legislature sought to hand it. Disney's asking the district court to step in and order that its contracts for those development deals remain in effect and declare that DeSantis's actions are constitutionally unlawful and unenforceable. A DeSantis spokesperson already responded to this, calling Disney's lawsuit another unfortunate example of their hope to undermine the will of the Florida voters in circumvent state law. They pointed to the fact that Disney, for nearly half a century now, has had this special taxing district, effectively an autonomous area inside Florida that they have been given free reign in. It was one of the deals in the 60s with Walt Disney to get them to build a theme park in Florida. And what DeSantis and his administration has been doing for the past year and a half or so since Disney spoke out against the law is reigning in some of that authority and autonomy. And so the governor's office believes that they do have that sort of power. Jill, just big picture here, it's notable because Republicans typically sell themselves as better for big business, more hands-off, less regulatory, less restrictive than Democrats. And it's the opposite in this case, and it does come as DeSantis right now is on a sort of global mission to bolster his foreign policy uh, credentials. Just ahead of what we expect in the next couple of weeks will be his announcement that he's running for president. And most, it has a lot of ripple effects. Disney World has about 58 million tourists that it brings to the area every single year. We're talking $70 billion to the Florida economy. It is by far the state's biggest employer. They have about 70,000 workers. Um, and to your point, Republicans, if anything, tend to try to position themselves as pro-business and then you've got small businesses around Disney that really rely on some of those tourism dollars as well. Yeah, what's interesting, Jill, as we talk about politics here, is Donald Trump has sided with Disney in this case, saying that what DeSantis has been doing is a stunt. You know, he's been trying to effectively eliminate DeSantis as a competitor. So Trump here, interestingly, despite going after Disney at times for being, quote, too woke, in this case, is siding with them, saying that DeSantis has gone too far in going after one of the biggest employers in the state. Okay, on to another story that has to do with these culture wars. Republican lawmakers in Montana voted to bar Representative Zoe Zephyr from the chamber floor for the remainder of the legislative session on Wednesday. This move was in retaliation for remarks that she delivered attacking Republicans and then participating in protests after they had voted to ban gender-affirming care for children. She said Republicans supportive of such a ban would have blood on their hands. Zephyr is the state's only transgender lawmaker, a freshman who represents the college town of Missoula. Republicans demanded an apology for saying that they would have blood on their hands. She refused. Here is a bit of what she had to say Wednesday before they voted to bar her from speaking on the floor. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana, including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. And in that hearing, our caucus pleaded with the Republican chair of the Judiciary Committee to not allow certain testimony to keep decorum. And we were told a lot of people have a lot of opinions on these things. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. She is now barred from the floor and gallery in the state capital of Helena, uh, but will be able to vote via Zoom. So voting uh, went along party lines. There are 68 Republicans in favor 
32 Democrats opposed. This is another state where you have a Republican supermajority here, which allows them to make these types of moves. Republicans is actually considered in the state a move to expel her completely, similar to what happened in Tennessee. Remember, we've told you about what happened in Tennessee with the Tennessee Three. They voted to expel two out of three of them. But then local leaders in Tennessee voted to put those two legislators back in, uh, both of them named Justin there. And that's something that Zephyr said that the Montana Republicans saw and learned from. So instead of fully expelling her, they made this move to just bar her from speaking and bar her from the floor as to not have a, a repeat of what happened in Tennessee. So this is all over, as you mentioned, a fight over her remarks, saying Republicans would have blood on their hands. And it speaks to the larger question, which is how far can you go to punish the speech and protest on state house floors? After her remarks last week, they effectively banned her from speaking for the last week. In support, protesters have been taken to the gallery in the state house in Montana, chanting, let her speak. Uh, they unfurled a banner that read, democracy dies here. And Zephyr tried to cheer them on from the House floor. And this is something the Republicans also cite here is that, you know, we can't have this sort of thing happening on the House floor. And so after more than a week here of not letting her speak, they finally granted her the right to speak. A bit of what we just played, Jill, just before they censured her and barred her from the floor. We'd love to hear from all of you. We actually have a voicemail, 1-800-711-MOSH, where you can chime in with how you feel here, ask questions. Again, 1-800-711-MOSH, and we will play your voicemail on a future episode. And by the way, now that we're on video, we should mention that we are on YouTube uh, now. I should probably swap my uh, husband's Ohio State mug for my (laughs) Mo News mug that I do have. Uh, It's on my desk, but I use it to hold business cards and stuff. I'm not even using my Mo News mug. I'm just using one of these glasses that we had. (laughs) I think it's in the dishwasher right now. Jill, before we get to our sponsors this week, I want to thank so many of our listeners for already joining Mo News Premium in just our first two days. The support has been incredible. The numbers keep growing, including, Jill, some founding Lifetime members, which we'll talk about in a second here. Uh, if those of you those of you who haven't heard or haven't gone to mo.news slash premium, we have a link in show notes where you can sign up. It's an opportunity to get more content from us uh, and help support what we're building here, sustain what we're doing and grow. We will keep doing, we should note, because I keep getting this question, what we're doing for free on Instagram, on this podcast, but we're making a lot more additional content available. If you join, when you join, I should say, Mo News Premium, among the benefits is a members-only podcast feed where you'll get early access to special episodes, behind-the-scenes content. We've been putting up Mondays with Motion Al that we do on Monday nights on Instagram where we answer people's questions. We also have an interview with the points guy, Brian Kelly, on all things travel. Gotten great feedback there with tips on how you can maximize your airline points. And premium members also have access to a private Instagram account where we'll be sharing more behind the scenes stuff, deeper dives, interviews, more lives. It's seven bucks a month or $70 a year, which means you get two months free. And an added benefit right now is an extra month free for all podcast listeners if you use Mo News Pod, that code, upon subscribing. As I mentioned before, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pay once for the rest of time, Jill, we're offering a founding lifetime option for $1,000. We've actually had a number of people sign up for that, which has been very encouraging and very cool. And we're so grateful to them. Either way, whether you become a lifetime member, a monthly member, an annual member, it is a great way to get extra content and feel good about supporting independent journalism. We know that the news is broken. 
So you could help us fix it. Okay, we need to do something real, real big for lifetime members. Okay, I think forget the virtual party. I think we need an in-person party for lifetime members. We will be hooking up lifetime members. They'll be getting a bit of special merch, Jill, among other benefits. I almost want to have a pool party or something over the summer. <laughs> All of you who become lifetime members, you heard it here first, are invited to a pool party at Jill's place. <laughs> All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's podcast, but we want to thank our big sponsor this week, Hold On. Just coming off of Earth Day, it is more important than ever for us to make thoughtful changes that help make an impact when it comes to taking care of Mother Earth. And it can start with some very small things, including what type of sandwich bag or trash bag you use. And so we're very happy here at Mo News to be partnering with Hold On, one word, Hold On, is a company that is all about finding a better way to go about our daily chores. Trash bags, kitchen bags are necessary staples, but it turns out they don't need to be 100% plastic to get the job done. Hold On trash and kitchen bags are heavy-duty, plant-based, non-toxic, and 100% home compostable. We've been using them in our kitchen here in Brooklyn, and it feels good to be part of the movement away from single-use plastics. Hold On bags break down in a matter of weeks instead of decades or centuries, and they're offering right now a special deal to the Mo News audience. If you head over right now to holdonbags.com slash monews or enter monews at checkout, you can save 20% off your order of bags. Again, that is holdonbags.com, H-O-L-D-O-N bags.com slash monews to receive 20% off your order. All right, time now for the speed read from the Associated Press. House Republicans narrowly passed sweeping legislation Wednesday that would raise the government's legal debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion, but attached steep spending restrictions that neither the White House nor the Democrat-led Senate will accept. The bill passed by a razor-thin 217 to 215 margin. It is a tactical victory for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who fought hard to unite Republicans around it. And it comes as he challenges President Biden to negotiate and prevent a catastrophic federal default this summer. Biden has threatened to veto the Republican package, and the president has so far refused to negotiate over the debt ceiling, which the White House insists must be lifted with no strings attached to ensure that America pays its bills. He wants a clean bill lifting the debt ceiling, similar to the ones passed by Republicans for President Trump and previous presidents. It is part of the speaker's strategy to use the vote as an opening bid, forcing Biden into talks. The two men could hardly be further apart on how to resolve the issue. And Moshe, I just think it's important to remind people when we talk about the debt ceiling, this is not about new spending. This is about just paying for stuff that has already been approved by lawmakers from both parties. Yeah, this is about paying our debt holders, including Americans, including uh foreign countries, et cetera, who hold our debt back for the money that we've already taken out, which we're about to hit sometime in the coming weeks, depending on who you believe here, $31 trillion. We will hit that debt ceiling figuratively, which is why it needs to be raised again. But Republicans here feel there's an opportunity to seize on the possibility of this fiscal doomsday, it's called, to try to extract policy concessions from Biden. Now, for the record here, we have never defaulted in American history, going back more than 200 years. And when you hear Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill at the White House talk, none of them intend to make that happen. But here you have a game of chicken effectively happening between the House Republicans and the Democrats here. 
And what the Republican majority here is trying to do in the House is maneuver Biden into a corner and get him to roll back some of his federal spending. And they're hoping to save a few trillion dollars over the next decade. Basically, they're trying to use the fact that we could go off the fiscal cliff here as leverage. The Republican bill that they passed on Wednesday, by the way, also repeals a number of Biden accomplishments. It's why the White House is not keen on even entertaining this, including tax credits related to electric vehicles, other clean technologies. It ends the president's plan to waive up to $10,000 for millions of student loan borrowers. It limits the power of federal agencies to regulate a variety of industries. It imposes new rules on low-income families that receive federal benefits like food stamps, Medicaid, requiring them to work longer hours in exchange for help or losing them. The Republicans say, listen, this time is different, despite the fact that we raised the ceiling you know, a number of times under previous presidents, Republican and Democrat, because we've hit $31 trillion, and that is too much. And we should note, Jill, when you look back, and we've run these numbers, and we'll, we'll run them again on the Instagram account. If you look back at the last four presidents, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, collectively, the four of them, $26 trillion has been added to the debt in just the past 20 years, basically about $6 trillion per president. Speaking of presidents from Axios, top White House officials are rushing to the aid of Vice President Kamala Harris to try to shore up her underwhelming poll numbers heading into 2024. Harris's numbers are even worse than President Biden's. Her approval's in the high 30s. His is in the low 40s. Officials believe it could make her a drag on the ticket. Axios reports that there is a zero chance that Biden would replace her on the ticket because doing so would be an admission that he botched the most important decision that he made as a candidate. So the White House and his campaign team are working to give Harris a boost, which her allies feel is long overdue. Biden's campaign announcement video featured shot after shot of the president and Harris together, as well as her meeting solo with voters. She's also featured prominently with Biden on the homepage of his revamped website. That'll do it, Moshe. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's interesting, Joe, when you look at his video, his three minute video, and we posted it on the Mo News Instagram account this week announcing his campaign, you see a lot of imagery of her. And that's not something that you've seen for the past couple of years. So it's like, hey, meet Kamala. And apparently they're going to be including her in promoting some popular Democratic causes like infrastructure spending, uh, abortion rights. She was in that meeting earlier this week in the Oval Office with the Tennessee three uh, lawmakers. The issue here, Jill, is she was saddled with some of the worst issues. And we've discussed this on the podcast, right? She got immigration, including the origins of the immigration <laughs> crisis. She the was root given causes, the root, root causes, causes of Latin American migration. <laughs> like solve Nicaragua, solve Honduras, solve El Salvador, solve the border, solve Mexico. So that's that one. Then she was also given voting rights, uh, which was a no-go uh, with Republicans. And so that was frustrating to her. But at the same time, she has suffered frequent staff turnover. Uh, she hasn't been entrusted with any other major high-profile assignments. Her allies will say this has to do with sexism and racism. That's the issue here. And that the White House hasn't helped her enough. And the Biden team hasn't been helpful to the Veep. At the same time, you ask the West Wing about it. And they'll say that her issues are self-inflicted. That when you watch interviews with her where she randomly laughs, uh, where you know she doesn't take some of these issues as seriously as she should. Those are her fault. At the same time, though, as you mentioned, they have no plans to replace her on the ballot. And it comes as he's the oldest president ever. He's about to be the even oldest president, even more old ever. And there's one major job for the VP, 
be ready when the president is unable to uh, complete their duties, which has never been more relevant than if Biden gets elected the second term. And so that's a huge issue. You can be sure Trump will point it out. By the way, Trump 77 in June in just about six weeks. So he's got age issues. So we'll be looking at his VP, but he's going to make Harris a target here being like, you know, listen, and he said this repeatedly, Biden doesn't even know what he's doing anymore. Let's talk about Harris, who will be the real president here. Uh, you don't want her being president. And so they really need to do something to boost her popularity. All right, now to the war in Ukraine. From NBC News, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that he held a long and meaningful call with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, on Wednesday. It is a long-anticipated first contact between the leaders since Russia's invasion 14 months ago. Xi appealed for negotiations to begin between Moscow and Kyiv. This is according to a Chinese government readout of the call. He pledged to send a, quote, special representative to Ukraine for talks about a political settlement, warning that there is no winner in a nuclear war. China is hoping to become a neutral peace broker in the conflict, although the United States and others have questioned whether China is really impartial given that it has this, quote unquote, no limits partnership uh, with Moscow. This is an interesting move because there's been no larger supporter of Ukraine here than the U.S. At the same time, this is the latest recognition that China has positioned itself as a diplomatic rival to the U.S., even though China has not been supportive of it all, hasn't even really condemned Russia's invasion here, shaking hands with Putin, etc. But clearly, Zelensky believes that having a relationship with China is important. He said in a statement before the invasion by Russia, China was Ukraine's number one trade partner. I believe that our conversation today will provide a powerful impetus for the return, preservation, and development of this dynamic. This conversation comes after a peace proposal uh, that was released by China in February. They called for negotiations and a ceasefire. It was dismissed by the U.S. It was dismissed by Ukraine. So it will be interesting to see what happens there. And Jill, we've been covering this on the podcast. China has been brokering deals in the Middle East, now getting involved in Russia and Ukraine here. They see themselves as a equal to the U.S. globally. And this is just one more example of that. From CNBC, First Republic Bank is in a fight for its survival. The past few weeks have just been brutal for the San Francisco-based lender. And now some analysts believe that the collapse of the bank is imminent. First Republic stock fell by 29% on Wednesday. And that's after falling 50% on Tuesday. It is now trading at just five bucks a share. Three months ago, it was at $140 a share. This latest collapse comes after the bank said that it lost about 40% of its deposits in the first quarter. First Republic was seen by customers and investors as a risky bank after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last month, it, which did have a similar financial profile. It had a lot of wealthy customers with uninsured assets above 250000 bucks, And the bank is invested in long-term assets that make it difficult to get immediate cash. After the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, it was revealed this week that depositors withdrew more than $100 billion during last month's crisis. And this is the reason for the latest issues for the stock. Investors are spooked. Yeah, Jill, and I should say as a customer of First Republic Bank, I should disclose here, I'm a customer of First Republic Bank. So I've been particularly attuned to this. 
though I also have accounts at a couple other banks just to hedge things. And I think that's always important. One of the lessons of the last couple of months. Do not put the lifetime Mo News memberships. <laughs> Jill, Make sure Jill, they're spread if, out, Moshe. Jill, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but needless to say, none of my accounts have more than $250,000 in them. So they are FDIC insured. So I feel good. And I've tried not to be part of the whole run on banks out there because I don't necessarily need to be part of it because again, my accounts are under 250 grand. <laughs> we reported on this a bunch in March, Jill, that uh, a group of 11 larger banks came to the aid of First Republic during that uh, peak period when SVB collapsed, when uh, Signature Bank collapsed, and they infused these other banks $30 billion in deposits to try to shore up First Republic. Well, advisors to First Republic in recent days are trying to convince those banks to provide further support by buying some of First Republic's assets at above market rates. Those purchases would result in losses for those other banks, but First Republic advisors are trying to convince these other banks on the idea that a First Republic failure would actually be more expensive to them. So they're effectively saying, like, please double down because this is the best plan for all of us. So First Republic is very hopeful here, and it comes as the U.S. government is currently saying they're unwilling to intervene in the First Republic rescue process. We've sort of seen this song and dance before. They're like, hey, banking industry, can you get it together yourselves? Because especially after the deal in March, they don't want to further deplete the funds after those two big shutdowns in March. But it's not looking great here. And clearly, there there is behind the scenes talks happening between major banks, between Janet Yellen and the U.S. government and First Republic. So stay tuned this week to see how this ends. From Reuters, a jury on Wednesday convicted Grammy Award-winning rapper Praz of the Fuji's hip-hop group on 10 criminal charges. So he was found guilty of conspiring with a Malaysian financier to orchestrate a series of foreign lobbying campaigns aimed at influencing the U.S. government under two presidents. What? What is this story? It's really kind of wild, Mosh. <laughs> Jill, this is why uh, in the evening when you like took a quick break, I added it to the speed <laughs> read because I was like, this combines my love of the 90s and an insane international political plot. No, it's true. I, I wrote most of the podcast in the afternoon. I sent Mosh a text message just saying, all good. Feel free to make changes. I closed my laptop for a couple hours, came back, and I'm like, so what did you add? And and this was it. I'm like, do you remember Praz? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, his conviction in federal court in Washington followed a trial that was filled with political intrigue and featured high profile witnesses, including Leonardo DiCaprio. Again, what? What role does he play? We'll explain that in a second. (laughs) So Braz was charged with conspiracy, acting as an agent of a foreign government, witness tampering, and falsifying campaign finance records. Prosecutors accused him of plotting with the Malaysian businessman Joe Lowe to attempt to influence the administrations of President Obama and President Trump. Lowe, who also faces separate federal charges, remains at large. All right, Moshe, walk us through it. What in the hell is going on here? (laughs) All right, so the last time you may have heard from Praz was probably on the radio as part of a Fuji song uh, or a ghetto superstar. Uh, And so in the mid-90s, early 2000s, he was a part of groups and musical hits. By 2012, according to prosecutors, Praz was in desperate need of cash. And he found a solution in this businessman, this billionaire, Jolo who was known to throw elaborate parties and pay celebrities big sums of money. 
So Proz is like, I'm in. I like to party. <laughs> I like to party, but I guess it depends on what Jolo asks you to do. In this case, the defense argues that Proz simply wanted to make money, but got bad legal advice as he reinvented himself uh, in this world of politics. Proz said in testimony, and he had to testify in this case, he didn't know it was illegal to lobby for foreign nationals without registering with the U.S. government. At the end of the day, prosecutors say that Proz took in $100 million from Lowe to help Lowe get access to President Obama and then later help negotiate with the Justice Department, basically interfering with them in some cases, uh, in regards to things that were happening during the Trump administration. To explain the Leo DiCaprio part here, by the way, Joe Lowe loved his celebrities. He liked Leo DiCaprio. You might remember the film Wolf of Wall Street. Well, Leo DiCaprio got funding from Joe Lowe for Wolf of Wall Street. So that was his connection. As they're explaining how Jolo manipulated things, obviously he was not a part of this trial because he's wanted and he remains on the loose, as you mentioned. But Praz, not looking good for him after this conviction. And it sort of reminds me of the lyrics from Ghetto Superstar that he begins, Jill. The supreme dream is always coming up with schemes from hubcaps to selling raps, name your theme. Who the hell want to stop me? I hated those who doubt me. I feel like he can update those lyrics for whatever just took place. <laughs> um, by the way, one of the things that we would um, potentially want to add on Mo News Premium is some behind the scenes of how we put together the podcast. So look for that. I was going to do one. Um, I was going to do a behind the scenes video today. Yeah, I Jill, just, you texted me. You texted me. You're like, I'm going to do some behind the scenes stuff. And I was so excited. I because I, I really just don't feel well. Um, I went, my daughter was a little sick and I got whatever she had. And it's just like unattractive of me. I'm just picking, I was about to do it, but it was me like in a bun and my sweatshirt and my bed with tissues. And I'm like, you know what? This video can wait. You can do that. We're going to hook you up with the Instagram filters where you have the glitter face or the makeup (laughs) face or whatever. Don't worry, Joel. I like to keep it real though, Mosh. I agree. I hear you. Okay, from the Wall Street Journal, schools are rethinking homework and whether it's a fair way to grade students, instead focusing on equitable grading. Proponents point out that America's kids come from all sorts of backgrounds. All right, some stats here. 6% of school-aged kids, that's millions of students, only have access to internet at home through smartphones. This is according to the National Center for Educational Statistics. And that goes up to about 14% if you look at students from lower-income families. 3.4 million kids under the age of 18 are caregivers for members of their families. Millions work part-time jobs after school. Some students uh, lean on parents, siblings, or tutors for help on assignments. Others don't have that option. So all of this factors into the time and effort that students can actually put into assignments and, and placing importance on homework, uh, according to, to some people. They say that that favors students who have a stable home life and more hands-on parents. And this is why we are seeing school districts in Nevada, Iowa, Virginia, California, and other states embracing what they call equitable grading, which minimizes the importance of daily homework and instead focuses on final projects and tests, which is interesting because I thought that there was going to be less focus on testing, right? I thought that that was also part of equitable grading. At some point, you got to figure out what metric you're going to use to grade kids here. And I guess they're figuring it out here in some of these states. Students are given, in some of these cases, multiple opportunities to complete final assignments, are not necessarily penalized for missing deadlines or missing class, 
According to the Wall Street Journal, some teachers say students, not surprisingly, are gaming the new system. The emphasis on final shocker. assignments <laughs> shocker is so this emphasis on final assignments is leading some kids to ignore homework and classwork along the way, skip class frequently. So I'm sure you'll see a recalibration here at some point here. But you know, I understand the underlying goal. But at some point, you know, I've heard from college professors who say that they've seen an evolution in the type of students they're seeing over the course of the past decade, that these kids are not as resilient enough, uh, are sort of falling apart. And of course, some of that is a result of COVID, right? Uh, the last couple of years, kids being out of class, etc. But there is this feeling that having these sorts of, uh, setting these sorts of examples in middle school, junior high, high school is leading to less prepared college students, and then less leading to less prepared employees in the workforce. All right, Jill, now time for On This Day on April 27th. We're going to go back 500 years today, actually 502 years. You might have heard of Ferdinand Magellan, the Portuguese navigator who uh, sought to go around the world. Well, on this day in 1521, he was killed in a tribal skirmish when he was hit with a poisoned arrow and left to die by his retreating comrades. He was actually 18 months into his voyage around the world. It had started back in 1519. He had made his way three quarters around the world with his crew. He was the first European explorer to reach the Pacific Ocean. It was actually so tranquil. That's how they came up with the name Pacific. Ooh, interesting. But then he will only make it to the Philippines here because he dies from that poison arrow after Magellan's death. The survivors in one remaining ship make it across the Indian Ocean rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and then arrived back in Sevilla in 1522, becoming the first ship to circumnavigate the globe. But of course, Magellan doesn't make it. Reminds me of my other favorite explorer, Henry Hudson, who after several attempts to try to find a route to Japan through America, was left behind to die with his son in what we would eventually call Hudson Bay, Canada. Appreciate that you said Sevilla instead of Seville, the American pronunciation. <laughs> Jill, I didn't study abroad in Spain, but I remember all everyone coming back also calling it Barcelona. Uh, <laughs> you, you pick you pick your favorite uh, European <laughs> city, and then for a while you pronounce it, you know, the accurate or uh, OG way. But it's been so many years; I would have thought you would have reverted back at this point to Seville. But good for you, Mosh, for keeping it alive. I'm staying strong with Sevilla here, <laughs> Jill. Let's fast forward to the 1800s. Some marine history that I teased earlier on this day in 1805, after marching 500 miles from Egypt, a U.S. agent named William Eaton led a small force of U.S. Marines and Berber mercenaries against the port city of Derna. The Marines and Berbers were on a mission to depose the ruling Pasha of Tripoli. He had seized power from a previous leader who was sympathetic to the U.S. It helped inspire the phrase to the shores of Tripoli, which is part of the official song of the U.S. Marine Corps and had its origins today 218 years ago on the shores of Tripoli. All right, fast forward to 2006 in New York. Construction of the World Trade Center, the new World Trade Center, uh, began on the site of the former World Trade Center. It would open more than a decade later. And now to a bit of TV and music history. On this day in 1968, 55 years ago, Jill, Sly and the Family Stone, one of my favorites, released their big album, Dance to the Music. Dance, Dance to, to the, the music. music. <laughs> <laughs> and finally here, a bit of TV history. The Gen Xers and uh, the Boomers will be familiar with this decision. This week in 1971, CBS announced the end of six popular rural theme programs dubbed the Rural Purge that include the end of the Beverly Hillbillies, Mayberry, 
Green Acres, and Lassie, the plan at CBS was to reimagine their primetime lineup with more socially conscious shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons. Jill, did you watch reruns of any of those shows growing up? Maybe just Lassie here and there. I was a big fan of Beverly Hillbillies. I love the theme song. Mosh, I somehow have developed an insane case of hiccups as this podcast has gone on, let's which close, means let, it is time to wrap up. things up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the app store so we can continue to grow. <laughs> I feel make like sure, about to <laughs> Make sure to check out Mo News Premium, <laughs> mo.news slash premium. We have a link in the show notes. Join $7 a month, 70 a year. Uh, and the Lifetime Membership, all options for you for extra content and supporting independent journalism. You can also leave us a voicemail with your questions, concerns, or stories you want us to cover. 1-800-711-MOSH. Otherwise, folks, we will see you tomorrow. Jill, good luck with the hiccups. <laughs> I think Alex posted on her Instagram a cure for the hiccups. I'm going to scroll through. Go go for it. Go check it out. <laughs> uh, look, you heard it. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.